Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Every episode, I speak to someone involved in public debates, and I ask them about what they hold sacred and what they've learned about engaging across difference. In this episode, you'll hear our very first podcast with a married couple, Richard and Lydia Ayoade. Lydia is also known as Lydia Fox. Richard will be familiar to many of you as an actor, director, writer and comedian, known for his role in the IT crowd, directing films Submarine and The Double, presenting Gadget Man, Travel Man and The Crystal Maze, as well as numerous comedy panel shows. Richard is married to Lydia, who has worked as an actor and is the daughter of actor James Fox and has two acting brothers, Lawrence and Jack. We spoke about the difficulties of talking about power, status and fame, whose voices we value and whose we don't, why it's hard to depict faith on film, and why we shouldn't want to know personal details about celebrities. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello. 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 How nice to see you again. Um, We are uh, recording this interview for the first time uh, in private, having done a live show with Richard and Lydia. Uh, not that long ago, which was such a fun event. And the people in the room really enjoyed it. And we had fabulous conversations afterwards. But I think it's fair to say that all three of us found the experience more difficult than we were expecting for a variety of reasons. And we had a chat together afterwards and decided that we'd prefer to um, have another shot at it, not in front of a spotlight and uh, 180 people, because it turns out that talking about your sacred values, talking about yourself, talking about your relationship as a married couple, talking about the complexities of being in public or adjacent to someone in public um, requires a certain level of vulnerability and, um, yeah, is perhaps better suited to smaller numbers of people. So uh, that's the background to this conversation. And I think I am going to start with that because uh, the thing that drove initially... Um, inviting Richard and Lydia to talk to me was a sense that it'd be lovely to have a couple. It'd be lovely to have um, a reflection of the fact that the voices in our public conversation aren't usually discrete individuals, but are in these network of relationships. But as we got into it, it became obvious that trying to give space to voices that aren't necessarily high status in society comes with loads of uh, complexity and is actually quite difficult to do well. So I just wanted to hear your reflections on that experience. Lydia, one of the things we talk about a lot is is Dante and stories, mm. and you recommend lots of beautiful books. Tell me um, when that pull towards the kind of twin threads of storytelling and theology started and where has it led you as a passion in your life? Oh, that's a really nice question. I Well, I, uh, uh, I did try and become an actress, which actually it turns out I think it was a rebellion against my parents because I don't think they would have liked me to have particularly gone into... And how that, many of your siblings but, have rebelled in that fashion? <laughs> it, it could be rebellion. It could be just total interjection. I think um, uh, I have four brothers and two of them are actors. And it's a pretty high hit rate. It's a pretty high hit rate. Um, I feel that um, when I look back at my life, uh, really the, gr- the, the most powerful and true story is that which tells us that we're 
created and known and loved by God. And that, finding, rediscovering that as to be the context of why I might have wanted to participate in kind of storytelling in smaller ways. Um, also, just, yeah, liking the sound of my own voice and being quite attention-seeking, which seemed to kind of side with my acting. But now I look back and I see that my wanting to be an actor, it's probably wanting to be recognised and known mm. at some deep level. Yeah. That really... Um, it's not that I wouldn't act now or that, um, you know, you have to stop acting if you um, become a Christian. But I think they're part of the same thing, of wanting to be part of a, a truthful storytelling. That is so, that's so interesting. And it, this sense of being recognised and known and seen really connects to the thread we're sort of working away at about, is it even possible to be in public as yourself? Is it possible to be vulnerable and, sh- and should we be? And how appropriate is it? And a previous guest called Rick Samad has written this beautiful mm. memoir, but is extraordinarily vulnerable. Mm. And that's been quite costly for him in mm. lots of ways. Mm. But I know it's been incredibly freeing for mm. lots of the people who've read it. Yes. Um, Richard, you often in interviews are trying to complicate the idea of what a kind of public person should be and how much of their life we should know about and this phrase from one of your earlier interviews which really stuck with me talked about the Faustian pack with the pact with the media to cannibalize your personality tell me a bit about why you are kind of troubled by the the hunger for information about you and how are you kind of thinking about it now as someone who you know writes books and has made films and hopes to make films in the future and how you navigate that real tension well I'm not sure there is any hunger um myself i don't think there is hu- that much hunger to to know about people and i think oh, certainly not celebrities or whatever that would mean and i feel if they all stopped doing interviews everyone would be fine there there has to be i think there is a hunger not least talking to people who turned up to the uh, live podcast just because they just were desperate to know more about you in a you know very lovely and slightly weird way. Um, like, I think people also like to get out, you know. But also that if you look at the you know if you talk to someone in players. Yes, but if like it's clickbait, there is. Well, I don't think it's a necessarily lovely or a good impulse of one we want to feed. But stories with personal information about people, a sense of insight into someone's real life, that sense of some affinity or recognition or kind of salacious something. We know people are interested because it's what drives traffic on the internet. I'm not, I wonder whether it, there's causation there, though. Okay, yeah. Um, so I wonder whether after a while in a room with a stuffed animal, you start <laughs> saying, all right, Koki, what do you think about the situation? Um, I think it's just because it's there. And I think it's one of the biggest swizzes there's ever been to create a, an industry out of promotion. Um, I just don't think people have a huge hunger in a certain way. Um, I think there's, I like interviews and I, I do, um, I am interested in interviews of people I like, but I never get the thing that I, that I think I want, which is some kind of explanation as to why this person I'm interested in, say, I don't know, take Stanley Kubrick. Why is he good? I don't, he, he's not said, well, the reason... I'm a good filmmaker and here's how you become a good one is this thing. And so that communication or never quite happens. And I don't know that that person's best place, as I say, to reveal it. So, and also there's a, this with Clickbaker, I think there's a slight idleness to it. 
I don't know that it's a true hunger like people want to see their children or they want, you know, really uh, meaningful things or they want good relationships or they want to uh, clothe themselves. I think it, it almost operates at the level of, oh, it's vaguely interesting to see what this person has to say. And if this person doesn't say it, I wonder what this person has to say. So um, I suppose in interviews that I've done, which I've only, I don't know, done relatively late, um, and is um, I'm not quite sure what to say, I suppose. I'm not quite sure what people are asking, or I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, so I don't feel myself in some clever way complicating it. I think I just am not terribly good at it. And that necessarily complicates it because you feel the mounting frustration of the person talking to you. <laughs> oh, I'm never frustrated. I mean, but in general, mm -hmm. you know, I get the sense that they're going, this isn't quite what, yeah. what you're meant to be doing. Yeah, play the game. That's right. the kind of... But the, so what you said though is really... Yeah, forgive me. No. That insightful thing of why are they good? It's really helping clarify it for me that maybe what we're looking for is the formula. That kind of deep sense I think most people have of, I really don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what a good life is. Like I'm mainly faking it. I'm mainly feeling quite out of control and like a bit of a failure. But this person should have got their shit together. And if they will just tell me the secret then I can move towards it. And I guess the extreme version of that is that kind of, you know, morning routines of successful people or being super interested in famous women's what's in their makeup bag or what they eat as a diet. Because it's like, maybe if I do what you do, I can be more like you. And that's, you've made me realize just a fundamentally false premise because that's not how life works. It, yeah. Isn't it also that it's not causation, but I think there is a, a deep human yearning to be connected to other people I think we're just built to relate to one another and what and so part of it is wanting to participate part of it's wanting to find that information that you can feed into your own idea of the good but part of it must be just wanting to be in relationship with people and we just are so you know the way we live and it's yeah it's that yeah I'd, I'd say to add to that um by the way that's Richard Williams we, <laughs> yes. we're both quite Taken with Rowan Williams. Rowan Williams. Um, ben Quash, again, who... Um, mm, brilliant, Ben Quash. Uh, yes. He did a, what would you call it? A Symposium? I guess, yes. A, 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 I did a smash hit film called The Double um, <laughs> that um, really did um, tremendous business. And so to celebrate that, there was this symposium and Rowan Williams was one of the uh, people on it talking about the novel. Because it's mm. a Dostoevsky adaptation yes, and he's a Dostoevsky yes. expert. Mm. Yes. Is that how you say it? I suddenly worried that's not how you say no, it. No, I think that's... Is that how you say it? Dostoevsky. Yeah. My I, Russian I accent is flawless. I, <laughs> I've, yes. Or I could be also saying it wrong. Um, and whenever he um, talked about um, the double, he would always start with what was so successful about the novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's my... Uh, since you're carrying no woundedness from that, no, now. I, no, I, exactly. I, I, I and it's not because we it. don't desperately want some no, approval really, from Rome Williams that is really in and of itself maybe quite stupid. Yeah, no, it's very enjoyable. But I, I think that in a way, you, um, you, you sometimes like something. In fact, this is in Catcher in the Rye about Holden Caulfield wanting to call up various novelists. That was his um, um, idea of whether a book was good. Oh, I'd like to call up this guy and and, and ask him about it. Um, but there's a sense in which I think very often people who are doing it are doing it because they have problems with connecting. 
Hmm. So you end up with this, um, and I, I think in general, if you the the thing you're going for is almost 180 degrees the wrong thing. Mm. Um, I don't think that coheres to a, a philosophy, but more other than Sod's law. No, but it does confirm my previously said philosophy, okay. which is that there is a, a drive okay. to connect, yeah. even okay. if it takes you away from it. And the, so this is really helping me because I have all the, the kind of thread in my c- career, if you want to call it something so grandiose, is an interesting interest in public conversations and public stories and the way they form us and the way they make our private connectedness with each other or for me with God harder or easier. And therefore the kind of stories that we tell about the, the kind of people that we should be in relationship, what relationship looks like, how, how we strive for meaning and belonging. And if there's ways we can make those public stories more healthy and giving us a kind of better clue, the sense than which, you know, that Sally Phillips in her Theos lecture talked about the topsy-turvy topology of the kingdom of God that something about disability, her, her experience of her son's Down syndrome was like a door into a world where she had a map that actually made sense for the first time rather than the map that we're handed that, as we've talked about, orientates us towards the th- things that don't actually make us happy and don't actually connect us with people. Um, sorry, long interjection. But so one of the things I'm thinking about is how can people in public conversations use that responsibility and that power better and one of the things I thought I thought was they can be vulnerable and they can be open and of course St. Brene beloved <laughs> universally uh, has helped popularize this notion that if you're vulnerable and real in public it gives other people permission to do so and it slightly busts this myth that everyone else is, knows what they're doing and has got it together and it's only you who hasn't but you really make me question that Richard because one it makes me go Sometimes the vulnerability is just manufactured for PR purposes or mm. to sell something. And maybe actually those people being vulnerable in public are there because they don't know how to connect in real life. And we should just almost completely swerve the public storytelling and culture and just focus on the private relationships that we're in. Is that kind of where you land? Um, well, um, I think there are different people who have different abilities to communicate and some people communicate by being vulnerable. And some people um, are very proper, and that can be equally communicative in a certain way. I do think there is a place for taboo, um, and I suppose that always feels somewhat murky as an idea. But just, I don't know, the idea that there are some things that, if you're not talking about it, it's is not because there's some terrible thing happening, but just because you have certain uh, things that you don't like to talk about or... You, and I think that's okay. And I think there could be a blanket idea of what is um, revelatory or vulnerable that wouldn't suit everyone. Um, you know, for example, Lydia's mother, I'd say, um, see how I avoid intimacy by talking about someone else rather than myself, um, <laughs> uh, would, would be a very straightforward person, I'd say, but would not wish to talk about herself publicly. Now, I'd say that she's very honest, but she'd just go, I just don't want to do that. In the same way that when I was on a ski trip, I did not want to go into the disco. Now, people tried to force me to, to take to the dance floor. <laughs> and I said, no, I do not wish to do this. I will, it will, I, it will not feel good once I start. <laughs> um, I know that now. Um, and the idea that everyone has to be on this disco floor, um, it's, not, it's not what I uh, particularly wish for. And also, I think um, it, it cast a kind of air of, of doubt on anyone who isn't being vulnerable. 
but genuinely I do feel that you know you probably if anyone knows musicians you go often these people aren't terrific talkers the reason they're spending eight hours a day playing the piano is because they can't just walk into a room and go hey how's it all going they that is the way that they can um express themselves and it can be a sort of torture uh to ask that person say well come on What's your um, deepest fear? Reconvert that back into the language that you spent your lifetime avoiding. Um, or not even avoiding, just um, not, it not suiting you, potentially. Um, so, yeah. I, but I don't know that... But on the other hand, there are some public figures who are absolutely brilliant at talking publicly, very good at being vulnerable, and um, are very worth listening to. So I, I'd say it has to be case by case rather than a blanket yeah so i think because of all the complexities you know put three overthinkers in a room with some microphones uh, and this is what you get but because of all the reasons we've talked about um, i'm not going to do what i usually do which is get you to unpack a bit your childhoods and the things that have formed you um uh, and maybe we'll do that another time but uh i'd love to hear who in public conversation you think is kind of healthy and humane and life-giving and they might be people who are talking about themselves and speaking as themselves or people who are making uh art music films theater theology whatever it is um that you that'd be your one of the things i've liked about getting to know you guys is i've got lots of recommendations so i want to kind of share them with people well richard strongly encouraged me to do this masters because he I was taught by Ben Quash, who I know you you did your MA with it when I was at university. Um, and Richard and I know him and his wife, Susanna Ticciotti, who are both theologians. But um, I'd say those two are very interesting people who are worth looking into. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. He does interesting things. Ben Quash does interesting things about visual art and, yeah. you know, judging uh, installations in churches like some of the Tracy Emin mm. installations. What was it? The, what, there was a beautiful kind of neon one in Liverpool. Yeah. I heard you when I knew I was loved, or yes. I felt you when I knew I was loved. Yes, which I just felt mm. was one of the most kind of profound expressions of my mm. experience yeah. of spirituality done mm. by the kind of you know young British artist of the nineties, known primarily for her slept mm. in bed. Yes, created this extraordinarily profound. Mm. Um, Piece. So yeah, Ben's a great recommendation mm. to go and read his books and, and look him up and uh, Susanna as well. What about you, Richard? Um, well, I I could just say what I'm currently, um, re- Clive James, I'm currently uh, reading Cultural Amnesia, um, which I think is pretty great. And he um, managed to always be interesting um, and funny. Uh, I think quasi deliberately but i think he was more funny because he just was never phony um and so he just had a way of hitting sentences that no, just i think very few people seem to manage and he was serious in a non-anxious way i felt so um yeah it was tremendously um effect i've, I've just really been um drawn to him serious in a non-anxious way is a lovely phrase right okay i'd love Uh, to i aspire to be serious in a non-anxious way right thing to add to my to-do list um (laughs) thank you michael hanneker tell me more 
I feel very ignorant of Michael Haneke. No, well, hmm. Michael Haneke, Austrian director. In, in fact, there's a good book, Catherine Wheatley. She's at King's, yeah. Yeah, she wrote a good um, book on Haneke. But he would be possibly seen as uh, rather bleak. He, he, I guess his best-known films were Amour and The White Ribbon. Um, and it's, they're hard to describe other than they seem incredibly precise and exacting and they they have a complete absence of grace which i don't know whether he would construe it that way but they're not depressing because they show you what is missing i don't know that they have a complete absence well that they show the dignity of the human person but it feels quite empty do you mean the white ribbon Specifically, all of them that I've mm. seen, but which is only three. Well, Code Unknown. <laughs> I don't know. Code Unknown ends with, well, it's book ended by uh, children and they're trying to speak to one another with sign language. And it, there's something about it that you just go, people are still trying to connect. They're still trying but to. You can, something can be hopeful, but not have. Gra- well, maybe grace is something what, quite. Like a it is it's, it's something quite particular, Grace. I mean, so it, tell me what you mean by it, because yes, I, I feel do. this sometimes when I'm watching things and I have to stop. Things like House of Cards or there's certain shows that everyone loves that I have to stop watching because there's no one who I feel kind of has a redemptive arc. And I don't know whether that's just a kind of naive and kitschy or aesthetic taste in me. But when, what, what is it about those films that you think there's an absence of grace? And could you name something that you think does have grace in it and is done, and is done well? Because I'm trying to get to what we mean. That's a really good question. I shouldn't have said what I said. No, like, I can't substantiate it in I think, any way. I think it's good. I, I think... It's your dissertation. I can refer you to Rowan Williams on parodic art. What is or, parodic art? Well, I think... I don't know. I wish I understood it. I was trying to wrestle with it a bit, thinking about tragedy. And is that Christian? And is there tragedy? Can, can something be tragic and Christian? Is there tragedy? Yes, the crucifixion, but... No, the resurrection. And how, as a Christian, do you live between those two things? And I suppose, yes, for Christianity to just be triumphalistic is problematic. And therefore for art. Yeah. You know, but then as, as an artist, how do you depict something that hasn't happened? Like, yeah. That's The hard. grace for me. So I like Hanukkah, as in I think he's extremely brilliant. But I've, I have to take three or four days afterwards to allow the sadness to... Right. I feel fine afterwards. <laughs> I love you. But, <laughs> so I don't, but I don't know. Well, I, I think I def, don't understand what grace means, probably. I'm just, yeah, I don't. Can you put it in a film? I don't know. As I in, don't think you can harness it, but I, I think probably by its absence, maybe that is a good way to have it there because I, it's present in its absence. And Yeah. Well, all, I, I feel that it's more that someone was able to make something that good and um that it doesn't feel false or manipulative that's what you see i feel you can have something where you know every angel gets its wings um but i never quite believe it in a film i never quite i mean bresson you could say he has this great and or carl theodore dreyer specifically would show a, a moment where or, or kislowski would show a moment where the normal Sorry, I'm shaving at the same time. Um, where the normal bounds of logic are confounded, but I don't know that logic 
the great confounds logic necessarily, would it? I, mean, grace I don't think it has to be an against a, logic. I don't think grace has but to be a deus ex machina moment where you is see something hope? beautiful. But I think the there are films or art within which the 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 failure isn't negative, isn't ultimately negative. The failure can be part of the hope. Mm. And and the failure to be human can be very it's faith is very difficult in art, isn't it? Mm. It is there I was talking to a guy who's a philosopher who um I hope will write this book one day. He hasn't written it yet, so I won't kind of sort of it's frustrating to have not be able to point you to something, but about how he thinks that one of the reasons lots of people find it difficult to connect with religion is m- there's much more an aesthetic element than we think there is. There is a, there is a rational element, there is an emotional element, there's, but there's also something about the aesthetics of particularly kind of mainstream expressions of faith that are very far from the kind of dominant aesthetics of our culture. Mm-hmm. And that's why Christian art and Christian novels and Christian films are often so bad mm-hmm. because there's they're, they're a million miles from a kind of default particularly in kind of comedy, but also more broadly, kind of irony and detachment and subversion. And they're they're almost too on the nose. They're too straight. They're too primary colours. But getting at... That's not most people's, I think, experience of faith. It's much more murky and mixed than that. But there's something incredibly difficult about depicting it. Have you kind of... Do you have films where you think it works or do you think actually it's just... You can't translate it onto the screen and... Um, Looking well, either of you. <laughs> I, hmm, uh, well, I would say, though, I'll try and come up with a, a bad answer to that, which um, which will take effort to even come up with a bad answer. But I, I wonder whether in something that's tragic or something just to the previous point or something that seems hopeless, the, I think the the hope is that it can be seen. The fact that you can see this and describe this hopelessness is hopeful to me. Whereas someone mm. describing hope badly is hopeless to me. I just feel it's so depressing that that's what you think hope is. Mm. That basically you've quit your job in this luggage manufacturing department to see Bobby's piano recital. And that's, that's your redemption. That's the thing. It doesn't feel sufficient. It doesn't feel earned. It doesn't feel enough. And so there can be something. Yeah, I feel there might be more whatever grace might mean in admitting that currently it's impossible to see. Mm. That might be more honest in a sort of of Joby way. Yeah. But in terms of things where I have felt some kind of communication of grace, I'd say Eric Romer, I think, manages it. Who's Eric Romer? Um, He's a Catholic, French. French director, yeah. The Green Ray. Mm. Sort of does it in a certain. Often it's light. Malik does. Yeah, it's, there's something in the light of it, or. But is there something in artists, and maybe this is why I thought I wanted to be an actress in, about ambiguity and confusion. That maybe, and I mean I'm a Christian, but I have huge confusion in my head and heart, and. I think those things that that's part of hope maybe is being confused and mm. like weren't the disciples confused yeah and realizing that it's okay there's an yeah. ex- acceptance thing kind of accepting the wrestle of the human condition can be an mm. enormous relief so the christians that have really helped me have been those that don't find me being confused problematic 
yeah. they they don't they accept it and enjoy it even uh yeah Oh, there's so much um, I want to pick up with you guys again, but I've taken up loads of your time, so I'm going to finish with the question I usually start with, which I'm realising is really hard as a cold question uh, without a, a bit of a ramp up to it. I'm going to ask you um, about your sacred value, if you know uh, how you conceive of that word, and uh, yeah, what would be your your best guess about what you individually and maybe together hold sacred? Love. Yes. I mean, that's not my it's answer. Love. Well, it actually is in many ways, but okay. I, I, I call Richard love. And so I was proposing yeah. you were passing the button. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, when we did this live, I said money. <laughs> and, and it was very funny. And, um, and partly true. It's actually been proven even more to be the case in the intervening <laughs> period. So I um, don't, I, I do find it a hard question to answer of myself. Um, I suppose the other thing um, I probably fudged it with was saying that a, a sense of a kind of suspicion of what people say as opposed to what they do. Um, and yeah. Does so that boil down to a kind of skepticism? A very sensitive bullshit detector. No, no, that's my super, I don't think that's, that's, that's my no superpower. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I don't think I have it, but more, more just a kind of, more just a suspicion of the idea that you'd be able to say what it was, mm. that mm. probably someone would have to look at your life and say, well, this is what it was. Clive James is quite good on uh, Sartre in this regard of just saying, this is a person who made quite a lot of his freedom fighting during the res resistance. Um, and, you know, what he said and what he did may not be in total alignment. Mm. And so listening to Sartre saying what is valuable needs to be taken in the context of his life. Mm. And so as I guess that was what I would have to say, that what I would say, why would I be saying it? Because I want people to, <laughs> yeah. Um, because maybe I'm trying to control what people think, or I'm trying not to control what people think, or, you know, there's this added element of me uh, saying, how can I, in what I say now, best represent Lydia and I together, um, how do I do that? How can I sort of parlay this version of me versus the version of myself I am with Lydia? Um, do I even know? Are, are they the same thing? Are they different? I have no idea. I remember this is a, a tangential anecdote, but a writer, Wally Shawn. Wally Shawn, I think, is worth a reading. He's brilliant. He said that the great thing about Chomsky was that whoever he spoke to, Chomsky spoke exactly the same. And Wally Shawn said about himself that by comparison, if I, if someone else comes in the room now, I will change personality. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think Chomsky's uh, better than Wally Shawn. I think they're both great. And, and I don't think one's being more truthful than the other, probably in their life, but just, they both know yeah. themselves. Yeah. Something about that. Un the unknowability of ourselves, even to ourselves is a strong thread. In what mm. you said. Lydia. Um, yes, I think I can. Yeah. I agree the expenditure of our lives will reveal what's sacred to us. And I can only say what I hope is sacred to me, which is truth and beauty and goodness. And I find that, I really find that in what gets called the gospel, which I didn't know for ages really what that meant. Yeah. I knew it academically, but I feel I know it more bodily in my heart now than I did before. 
Could I add that normally you add the caveat other than your uh, spouse and children at yeah. the start of that question? We need to make so sure fact, that people know that, that... The fact that you didn't add that then, I, I'd like to add that as a postscript. Yes, mm. it's all right. Um, we won't judge you for not mentioning Well, them. you say that. <laughs> it's a critical world in which we live. Yeah. Um, Richard and Lydia, thank you so much for overthinking some deep and interesting things with me today. Thank you for having Richard. us. Thank you for having me in particular. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. So now available on Spotify. So it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.